This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 201 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest this week is a true Internet pioneer. Paul Vixie describes himself as a longtime defender of the Internet, He's an author or co-author of several RFC documents and open-source software systems, including Bind and Cron. He's a serial entrepreneur and now CEO and co-founder of his fifth startup company, Farsight Security, and he's an inductee into the Internet Hall of Fame. He joins us with insights on how we're suffering the ramifications of early Internet design choices, what that means for global networking going forward, and specifically why he believes it's best not to rely on outsourcing your DNS. Stay with us. Mid-90s, I started the first anti-spam company and unwittingly invented the distributed reputation business. So if you've ever heard of something called the RBL, the real-time black hole list, uh, that was our work, uh, which we did not patent. So now everyone uses it. And uh, pretty much no email you will receive from now until the end of your life will not have been protected by RBL in some form. So uh, as a relevance junkie, that was pretty cool. Uh, We later sold that company to Trend Micro, because it turned out that if you stop people from spamming, which was not really illegal, and you do it in partnership with you know, some number of other companies, then it looks like um, conspiracy in restraint of trade. So there were a lot of lawsuits. And eventually, in order to pay for the lawsuits, I had to sell the company itself. Um, so my partner and I in that venture... Uh, decided, you know, let's let's see who wants it for how much money. Uh, we sold it. We paid off the lawyers, and he uh, became their CTO. So that was, uh, you know, actually not a bad outcome, but it was a damn foolishness, which I, I regret. Hmm. Uh, before that, I had started a company called Internet Systems Consortium, which was a nonprofit dedicated to DNS software. And so there was a time when our software, which uh, we'd originally inherited as part of the Berkeley Unix project, uh, had an almost 100% market share for uh, providing DNS services and consuming DNS services. Eventually, you know, it, it diversified, and so now there's quite a few companies and some nonprofits, and there's, uh, there's a lot of different DNS stuff. But at the, at the time when we were trying to figure out how to commercialize and privatize the internet. Uh, The DNS turned out to be vital, and we started that company. Uh, My co-founder in that venture was a fellow named Rick Adams, who had been the original founder of UUNet, so uh, Hmm. definitely one of my mentors. Uh, That company still exists, but it is a nonprofit. And so uh, even though I I, I did end up working there full-time for around 10 years, uh, I always intended and now have returned to uh, sort of private industry. We were an internet connectivity provider to AltaVista and other companies like AltaVista who had a need for 
you know, pretty high-end, pretty complex services. And uh, the, the cloud didn't exist. And so we had a tiny little ISP with 12 people. Uh, and we made sure that the, some of the larger early sites on the Internet were reachable 100% of the time. And so that was a lot of fun. So I was the co-founder and CTO of a startup called Viu, uh, also in that same sort of late 90s era when we were trying to commercialize and privatize everything. And it looked to us like there was an opportunity for content distribution networks, which, of course, are everywhere now. Um, so I think that idea came to a lot of a lot of people at the same time. But whereas today what you're seeing is content delivery network as a service, you know, from, let's say, Akamai or Cloudflare, uh, what we were doing was content delivery network as an appliance. In other words, at that time, you could still sort of pay for some rack space and some connectivity somewhere and, and put your equipment there. And then uh, our idea was that you would put our appliance there as kind of the front end of the whole thing and uh, that it would help do global load balancing. Uh, and it did work, but obviously the market went a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that uh, that startup represents one of my failures, of which you must have some. So I'm <laughs> glad I have some. I did not like it at the time. Right. And then finally, this one, Farsight. In 2012, I realized that we had hit on a kind of a winning strategy where there's a lot of relevance and uptake and traction for the, the Farsight way of doing things. And we had a small stable, maybe a dozen uh, commercial customers that were actually buying services from, this was my nonprofit. I incubated this idea there. Uh, and I realized I can't do this. I can't make this bigger if I, can't, if I don't have access to capital uh, and also access to employees who would want stock options. So in 2013, we incorporated Farsight Security as a separate entity, raised money, used that money to buy these assets from my old company, the, the nonprofit, and we started operation as Farsight on July 1st, 2013. And so um, that, that has been my all-consuming activity in the almost eight years since then. And, and what does Farsight Security focus on? So the uh, problem statement is that the world is a lot less secure now than it was before the Internet. So when we commercialized and privatized this, we didn't really have a rock-solid technical foundation to do it on. Right? The Internet was designed by scientists for other scientists. It didn't really have commercial capability. We just used it that way, especially the web used it that way, and so... It was very clear that we weren't going to suddenly stop and start over and, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board. Well, what kind of a global Internet would actually su- support what we're trying to do here? No, it d- doesn't work like that. You take what you have and you make it do what you what you need. And uh, there's been a lot of trauma from this. Think about um, the Snowden disclosures in 2013 um, when he talked about uh, kind of let the uh, a lot of the world know how the world works, which is, uh, gee, did you know what the National uh, uh, Security Agency is doing in terms of monitoring Internet traffic? Uh, so that's seen as a threat by people who don't want to be monitored. 
It doesn't matter if they're breaking the law or not. They think it's a matter of principle that they ought to be able to act privately. Then you have uh, the whole Internet of Things. You've got all these tiny little devices that have microphones and cameras in them, and they're connected to our home networks, and they are spying on us. And our smart TVs are spying on us. So you know, those are a couple of non-nefarious, in other words, they're not intended to do harm, uh, but nevertheless threats to what the Internet also represents, which is can we please communicate fluidly with each other and reliably? Uh, but the trouble is that if you do, you will be subject to various types of surveillance. Um, we're not in the anti-surveillance business, but that does inform our worldview, which is that we're not going to make that problem worse. So what, with that backdrop, what we have is an uh, observational company. Uh, we sell the ability to find out what happened, even if you weren't there at the time or you weren't nearby. That's why we called it Farsight. So this is not reputation. We're not in the business of saying, gee, this domain name is bad, you know, this IP address is good, whatever. There are plenty of companies, including many of our customers, who do that. What we do is to say, this is what it did. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just this is the observation. This is our confidence interval. Uh, you should take this into account in whatever it is you are doing. And so uh, by sort of sticking to the observational side of things. We've made it possible for enterprises, ISPs, universities, really anybody who has a network full of devices and people, whether they're students, employees, customers, whatever, because connecting all of this stuff to the internet means that almost anyone in the world can sort of uh, tinker with your devices and, and try, to, uh, try to break into them and so forth. And if you look at the headlines, you'll see this happens every day. And so finding out a little bit of who those people are, a little bit of what else those attackers have done, a little bit of how you can predict uh, what they will do next or recognize them if you see them again. These are all things that require observational services. So uh, we are the big kahuna in this. It's only a 40-person company, but we are nevertheless the leader in the type of security that we provide. Well, let's talk about DNS it, itself. I mean, I, I'm, I know something that you advocate is is running your own local DNS server rather than counting on a, a cloud service to do that. Can you can you explain the thought process behind that recommendation? Sure. And first off, it has to do with uh, first mover advantage or uh, status quo. In other words, if you want to change the way things work, you need an excuse need to be able to say, I want to change the way things work, and this is why. So it used to be that this service was provided fairly near the edge, whereas most companies were offering it to their own employees and customers. Uh, Universities offered it to their students. ISPs offered it to their customers. And then in the early 2000s, there was a business plan minted. There was uh, an opportunity to collect a lot of data, uh, sell a lot of services, and it relied on trying to get DNS away from the edge and put it in the core of the Internet. And obviously that was successful. You look at Google with 8.8.8.8 and IBM with 9.9.9.9 and uh, Cloudflare with 1.1.1.1. You know, there's 200 more addresses that would be, you know, four numbers repeated with dots in them, each one making the claim that they are somehow better than the other 199 
it turns out that almost anything you want to do on the internet begins with a DNS transaction. Uh, milliseconds, in this case, matter. So if you're doing a lookup of a, from a DNS service that is maybe 15, 20 milliseconds away, so that might be several hundred miles, then that, that delay is going to insert itself after every mouse click you make in a browser. You just you won't have an opportunity to get that information really, really quickly as you would have if you were running a recursive server inside your own network. There's a huge technical advantage and a performance advantage to running the service yourself. Uh, secondly, there's a security problem with putting it in the middle. Um, actually, there's two. Uh, and so what happens if you put something in the middle of the network is that your traffic to that service is then passing through a whole bunch of third parties, middlemen. And if they want to look at that traffic and try to monetize it, turns out there's usually not a law that would prohibit that. GDPR does prohibit it, uh, but that's only for Europe. Generally, it's okay to monitor the traffic going through your network for whatever purpose you deem uh, necessary. That means there's been a huge amount of DNS-related surveillance. People hate that. They say, well, we don't want our traffic to be visible to people that might not have our best interests in their heart. So let's encrypt it. In other words, let's add complexity, key management, uh, the sort of the session negotiation. Let's, let's add more delay, more, more software, more lines of code, more state, more opportunities to have bugs, uh, so that we can encrypt this information that's very sensitive before we send it to the center of the Internet. Now, what they could also have said is, you know, sending it to the center of the Internet was never a justifiable approach. If, if I don't want my information to be surveilled, what I should do is keep it in my house. I should keep it in my office, in my enterprise, uh, in my university, because then in order for a third party to surveil, they would have to break into my building and tap my network in some way. So in other words, uh, we did something foolish, which was to move this function from the edge where it belongs, where it always was, into the middle of the network where it became subject to all kinds of new attacks. And then we meticulously added complexity to that solution in order that we could somehow avoid the inevitable costs of outsourcing something that should never have been outsourced in the first place. Uh, but there's one other problem, and it has to do with those content delivery networks I told you about. You know, traditionally, if you look something up uh, from your local server, which I, I would like everybody to run inside their, their own network, if you look something up, uh, if it knows the answer, you get a very fast copy of that answer. It's great. Uh, if it doesn't know the answer, then it's going to have to go find it, which means, you know, let's imagine you're going to a website that's hosted by Akamai or Cloudflare, um, you're going to have to go talk to the name servers for that domain, which are probably operated by Akamai or Cloudflare in this example. And you're going to have to say, you know, please tell me what I need to know, because there's somebody, you know, tugging on my sleeve back home who wants this, this information. And that's the thing that is kind of sensitive, right? Because you're indicating that you are interested in a particular thing. As one of the pioneers of the internet, and, and you are indeed in, in the internet uh, hall of fame, when when you look back on those early days, I mean, and and you compare that to where we are in those early days, could you have imagined 
the things that we see today? Was was any of this on? Was it possible to have the vision to see where things are these days? Well, uh, some people certainly did. You know, I mentioned that my co-founder for, at the Internet Systems Consortium was Rick Adams, and he also is the founder of UUNet, which was kind of the first commercial ISP. And so, obviously, he knew there was something going to change. And there are any number of, uh, you'd call them bloggers now, but uh, basically thought leaders in that time who were talking about what a worldwide data network uh, could do for us. How could it change the nature of society, the nature of the economy? I was not interested in any of that. Uh, I was simply trying to get it done. So, you know, if I had really stressed myself and said, all right, what could we do uh, to make this better? Then there are some things I would have done differently, right? There are some boneheaded decisions uh, and recommendations from me that uh, I I would like to get uh, get those back. But um, generally speaking, uh, all I knew was that the sky was the limit and that we had an extant alternative, which was the OSI protocol suite, sometimes called ISO. This was something that the uh, International Telegraphy Union, ITU, was pushing rather heavily. There was a whole system that the world's telephone companies wanted to put in place to make a global data network. But of course, it was optimized for what they cared about, which was billing. Uh, you know, they were they were planning to make a lot of money from this, and um, they made a lot of choices that were kind of in favor of billing and not in favor of scaling. And so there was kind of a, a fight or a, a race who was going to come up with a set of internet protocols or you know, it wasn't internet protocols protocols for a global data network that was going to somehow be the best one and and then win and get out into the market faster and larger and thus cause the other one to be irrelevant. So I was very much on the internet side and, uh, you know, I knew people who were on the other side and we used to argue bitterly, kind of like Star Wars versus Star Trek, which one's better? Okay, (laughs) fight. You know, so there was was a lot that, uh, that could have been different if the internet people hadn't won the war. And so my... My only concern was winning that war, and I was not thinking about what would then happen uh, that that is bad. You know, you think about uh, electronic mail, and I used to work very seriously in that uh, that field. I'm the co-author of a book on a utility called SendMail, which was kind of mm-hmm. the first internet mail open source thing. Uh, also came from Berkeley Unix, and you know, so there was a time that I was like hip deep in that industry. That's why I ended up starting the world's first anti-spam company is that I was in the email industry and I didn't like the uh, all of the stuff that was uh, being transmitted that no one wanted to receive. Well, you know, if we thought about that, if we'd realized, you know, if you build a network for scientists, they trust each other, they behave well for the most part. If some student somewhere misbehaves, probably going to you know, get kicked out of school or something like that. So you build a network like that, it's going to be very fragile. And if you then make it available to all of humanity, for anybody who can, you know, pay whatever it is, $20 a month for a DSL connection uh, or a modem connection back in the days, if you, if you open it up to all of humanity, then 
you're going to get different behavior. It won't be a small number of trustworthy scientists. It'll be everybody. And if you once you get everybody, you're getting some criminals, you're getting some opportunists, you're getting some people who behave extractively. And the protocols aren't ready for this. And the system is ripe for abuse because it is so fragile because it was like a boy in a bubble. It was born into an environment that had no threats. That is, uh, that's where we find ourselves. And if if I had had an inkling of how bad things were going to get, I would have pushed for changes back when it was all very small and you just needed to get agreement from a few dozen people and you could then change the way the internet worked. It's way too late for that. So we've got structural defects that are built into the architecture of the internet itself that make it almost impossible to do safely. And so even though there's a huge amount of work going on trying to encrypt everything, that turns out to be in many cases solving the wrong problem. That's because the right problem can't be solved. Our thanks to Paul Vixie from Farsight Security for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.